As Luke announced, our Bible passage today is from the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. One of the more famous chapters of the New Testament by telling us people from the Old Testament era years ago and how they trusted God through the difficulties of life in order that we may do the same. Today, we come after all the people in the book of Genesis and in the early part of Exodus after 40 years of wandering in the desert when the people didn't show very much faith on the eve of the invasion of Canaan. We come to Hebrews 11, verse 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Here is the setting behind these verses. There's a man standing alone in a field. He's a warrior. In fact, he's a general. His army is encamped nearby, but he's out of earshot and perhaps out of eyesight. The wives and the children of the soldiers unusually are in their camp with them. Behind the army camp and the general is the Jordan River, which the whole nation had just crossed by a miracle from God that made the waters separate. But as soon as the people crossed, those waters flowed again. That river in the spring is at flood stage. It's absolutely uncrossable without risking your life. And so these people having passed into enemy territory, are now in a position where they cannot go back if they wish. They have no protection outwardly. They are the Israelites who have left Egypt some 40 years ago, wandered in the desert, and to whom God had promised this land. Now, in the distance ahead, the general looks up, and what he sees is this. He and the army nearby are on a plain quite flat. At the end of that plain, a number of miles hence, but close enough to be impressive, steeply, abruptly rise huge mountains that wend their way up into the hill country of Canaan. That hill country is beautiful and it's fertile. God called it the land of milk and honey. And some 600 years ago, the ancestor of these Jewish people had spoken to Abraham and had said, to your descendants, I will give this land. But before you get to those mountains, the general knew, you must cross this flat plain. And on this flat plain, probably about three miles away at most, is a city. This city is a mighty fortress. It must be passed in order to go into the country. It is the gateway to the entire land of Canaan. This city is one of the oldest cities in the world. It's not especially large. It could have been as small as eight acres. But as a Puerto Rican friend of mine, who was quite short in college said, I'm a small piece of leather, but I'm well put together. That was what was true of this city. Like other cities in Canaan that were the major cities, it had a reputation for some amount of opulence. It was intelligently laid out. 
there were well-designed houses. Many of the floors were paved or plastered. It had a drainage system. The pottery in Canaan in general and Jericho in particular was among the finest in the world. These people in that hill country and on the plain were significantly more advanced than the nomadic Israelites who had tramped through the desert, as I say, for the last four decades. And around this city of average Canaanite size, but of far greater than average Canaanite strength, was a wall. This was no ordinary city wall. This place was an absolute fortress because of its strategic location. A direct assault on this wall was impossible. The reason is this. If you were to come up to the walls of Jericho, the, the first thing you meet is an abutment that slopes up at 35 degrees. That abutment is 11 feet high. And that angle is so difficult and the stone on it is so smooth that it is quite impossible to go up and run up or to um, certainly use a battering ram against the building. Now what happens is this abutment begins 11 feet up, then it goes on a slope and it meets the wall behind it that vertically rises to about 35 to 40 feet. That wall itself, without the abutment, is some six feet thick. The men inside, like all the Canaanite cities, are used to warfare. There was no one king that oversaw all of Canaan. There were city-states, each with its own king. And these city-states were used to fighting each other and to fighting foreigners. And so these men were well-equipped for war, and as somebody said, they were in fighting trim. Now back to the general standing on the plain. He has sent spies in order to check out the land. They have returned with their intelligence, but God has not yet told him how he is going to take this city. And as the general ponders, God appears to him in the form of a man holding a sword. Joshua, the general, says, Are you for us or for our enemies? And the man answers, Neither. But I come as captain of the army of the Lord. By that he did not mean the human army of Israelites. By that he meant the armies of angels that come from heaven. And now God, in the form of a man, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself, says to General Joshua, in essence, here is the plan, how you will take this city. Now let's travel back several days earlier. The spies are inside the city. This city is a boiling cauldron of evil. Years ago, when God told Abraham, as I say some six centuries earlier, that his descendants would take over this land, God had said, but I'm not going to give it to them now, quote, because the iniquity of the inhabitants is not yet full. 600 years have passed for the sin in Canaan to ripen. And by the time the spies enter that city, disguised, of course, hoping to blend in with the people going in and out. That sin is brimming over. Canaanite culture was known 
as extremely wicked, even by the standards of ancient other countries. Every country that knew about the Canaanites knew that they were wicked people. Their worship was particularly disgusting. Child sacrifice went on in that country, and their worship was basically an orgy in order to mimic the fertility necessary for the gods to send rain on the crops. Now, of course, in a city like that, there are brothels. And the home of one of these ladies of the night was accessible as they all were. But this one happened to be built into the city wall. Her window looks out, perhaps on the plain, perhaps back to the mountains. Her name, as we pronounce it, is Rahab. It means wide open or broad, just like her house was wide open. Anyone was welcome, no questions asked. And yet, as two men come into her home, which was the common occurrence, men she didn't know, which was also the common occurrence, she can't help but ask herself questions. Something tells her, these men are not ours. We don't know what that was. And she is not the only one who sensed that these men are not ours. Although they keep a low profile, although they try to look, act, and speak like the people of the nation, word starts to get around in the form of gossip and raised eyebrows and hushed whispers. We think there's some Hebrews here. Eventually, that gossip gets to the king, and he orders a search made because word came that somebody thought they saw two men unknown in the prostitute Rahab's house. So the soldiers bring that dreaded sound that she assumes sooner or later she's liable to hear. We know that they stood outside her house because they said, bring out the men whom we think came in to visit you. But for some reason, for some uncanny reason, something had possessed her to instead hide these men. Her house is flat on the top. It's near the top of the wall. And there on the top, she did what so many people do who have flat-roofed homes in the Near East. She would lay flax out to dry. And under a pile of that flax were these two men. She quickly answers the guards. She has presence of mind. Yes, they were here. They certainly were. They certainly were. I don't know who they were. My business, you have to be discreet. It's an ask-no-questions kind of a place. But they left. They left at dusk. Right about the time when the gates are closing, if you hurry, you can probably catch them before they get back to that Israelite camp. The men believe her. They probably believe her for two reasons. First, she admits right away they were there as if it's no big deal to her because she's not complicit. And secondly, because like everyone else in the city, she would have everything to lose by these men escaping. So the soldiers rush out to go back to the king to set the military in motion, and a huge search party goes out, and immediately the gates of the city are sealed shut to prevent this man from escaping if indeed they are still hiding in the city. Night falls. She goes up to the roof, and doubtless in hushed whispers, 
she speaks to them and explains why she hid them. She said, I've heard of you. We have all heard of you. We have heard of you long before you got here. We heard how your God parted the Red Sea for all of you to cross. Folks, that was 40 years ago. We have heard how on the other side of the Jordan, you defeated the two strong kings of Og and Sihon and took all the land of Transjordan from them and destroyed their people and cities. And then we became aware through our observers how God parted the rivers of the Jordan at flood stage for you to cross. By the way, that parting had to be several miles wide. It wasn't a parting that had been at the Red Sea where God made the waters stand in a wall on either side. Instead, if here's the north and here's the south as the Jordan River flows, and as they are on the far side of the Jordan River, 15 miles up, God made a landslide come and stop the waters so that they are piled up. And therefore, all the water flows past where the Israelites are and goes on to the Dead Sea. And now, for a number of miles, this group of about two million people can cross. As soon as the final priest's foot hits the bank on the side of Jericho, the water starts to flow again. But now it flows at a far stronger rate because it has been piled up. And so it is really uncrossable. And these Israelites know they have nowhere to go but forward. But we're talking here about Rahab the prostitute. We've all heard what God did for you at the Jordan, across the Jordan, and in Egypt. And therefore, when we heard of it, she said, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Obviously, this had to be good news to the spies. But what they heard next, I think, had to take their breath away. She adds, our hearts failed and everyone's courage failed because of you, quote, for Jehovah, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. These men could not possibly hardly believe what they heard. The Canaanites' reaction has been to the onslaught of the Jews in their directions. Well, certainly Jehovah exists when it says in Hebrews that they were disobedient, the same word is they didn't believe. The two are the same word. It doesn't mean they didn't believe that Jehovah existed. He obviously existed. But what they were hoping was that their gods would be more powerful than Jehovah. And so we read that Jericho's gates were tightly sealed up. But what Rahab's reaction was, was exactly the opposite. Her reaction was, your God is the only God. And so she says to the spies, we read in the book of Joshua, now then please swear to me by Jehovah that you will spare my family because I have shown kindness to you. And in particular, she mentions my parents, my brothers, my sisters, and their children. The spies are dumbfounded. Here they are in Sin City, 
in the devil's lair and they hear a profession of faith from the only believer, a recent one, in the entire country of Canaan. How did they come across her but by the providence of God? And so she and they make an agreement between two parties you would never think would meet. Her part of it is, I will let you escape. I will not tell where you are. Their part is, we will spare you when we take the city and we'll spare your family. But your family must remain inside. And so we will know who you are. You were to take that scarlet cord over there and hang it out the window so we'll know which house is yours. She says to them, I would not advise going back to the Jordan. You'll be caught. Instead, go the opposite way, up into the hills. There were many hills in certain, many caves, I'm sorry, in certain ones of those hills. And so they hid there for three days. By three days, the Jericho soldiers had given up the search, returned home, and the spies were able to slip past and go back to Joshua and give their report. Now we come back to the general on the plain, alone, having heard from God what the plan is for this city. Joshua, the very next day, after the spies come back, rises early and says, it is time. On day one, the women are left in the camp. Their children are left in the camp. And of course, enough men there to guard them in case they're molested or attacked. The armed men move forward, not the entire nation, and they make a circle around the city. God has said, here is the order in which you are to march. There is to be a guard in the front. Behind it, there are to be seven priests. They are to have trumpets with them. Behind the priests comes the Ark of the Covenant, and behind the Ark come the rear guard of soldiers. Perhaps you remember the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you've never read the Bible in your life. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, and you know about it. It was a box, not very much bigger than the, this pulpit, really. Not about this tall, perhaps. And in it were the Ten Commandments. In it was the rod that miraculously budded of the high priest Aaron, and it was some manna. And it was the presence of God among the people. Every year in the tent called the tabernacle, where the Israelites worshipped, the high priest would come, and after certain highly regulated rituals, he would sprinkle the blood of an animal on top of that ark, which was called the mercy seat. And as God looked down upon from heaven, down to earth, upon the Ten Commandments in that box that were broken all the time by the Israelites, between those commandments that they broke and his pure and holy eyes were the blood of a sacrifice to atone for their sins. And God was able to dwell among them because of it. That was what that ark was all about. And so this bloody box went about. As the people crossed, God had said earlier, when you cross the Jordan River, you must keep 3,000 feet between any of you and that ark. The reason was twofold. 
The reason first was because God's presence and his holiness was there and the people must not presume upon his holiness. But beyond that, God wanted every Israelite possible to be able to see the ark, which of course represented his presence, so it would keep their faith high. And so doubtless as they circled Jericho, there was a great distance between the foreguard, the priest, then the ark, then a great distance, and then the rear guard. And around they walked. And the rule was this. The Israelites must keep absolute silence. Not a taunt, not a word. It had to be eerie. And then, at regular intervals, we assume, the priests were to blow upon the ram's horns. And the idea there is that these horns were not silver trumpets used to give more clear, direct signals for motion. These were ram's horns that were used to call the assembly together in the desert. These were ram horns that were used to assemble the people for war. And most notably, it was a ram's horn that was blown from the top of Sinai by God himself at an ear-splitting sound in order to announce he was coming from heaven down among the people on Mount Sinai amidst flames and smoke and rumblings and fearful exhibitions of his power. The Canaanites didn't know the meaning of anything. Perhaps they had heard of the box, but it was just superstition to them. The blowing of the horns, what are they doing? The silence of the people had to just spook them greatly. And then what really got them doubtless was at the end of circling the city, all the Israelites went home. There it is, an empty landscape. The only sound, perhaps, the breeze coming down the Jordan Valley, rustling the tall grass and the wheat. Day two, the same thing happens. Up early, around, in the manner we've described, and it keeps going. On the seventh day, after this clown show in people's minds, have been taking place. Perhaps they gave the Canaanites some comfort that these Israelites had all lost their marbles. The people march around again. But this time, after marching, they do not go home. They march the city, then they encircle it again, and then again, seven times in a single day. At the end of their final march, the entire cadre stops And there is motionless, dead silence. And then Joshua ordered that the trumpets be blasted. And after the trumpets were blasted, he shouted, Shout, for Jehovah has given us the city. And then from 360 angles, the people gave a mighty roar. And these great walls that are still the wonder of archaeologists crumble to nothing. They crumble to nothing except in one narrow place. Alfred Edersheim said, as many people have said, it was impossible for God to show more clearly that they had not taken the city 
but that he had given them the city. Each man rushes in at the angle that he is stationed around the city. They safely remove Rahab's family to near the Israelite camp. They slay the inhabitants and they put Jericho to the torch. That's the remarkable story, leaving out many wonderful details that is behind Hebrews 11, verse 30 and 31. Why did God tell us this story again in the Bible? And what are we to make of it? Well, it's clear that what the book of Hebrews wants to make about it is about faith. There are so many things that could be said. And if one was working through the first six, seven, eight chapters of the book of Joshua, where all this happened, there's so many things you could say. But what Hebrews is interested in is this. The people reading the letter to the Hebrews after Jesus has died and risen from the dead many centuries after Joshua. These people are tired. They're Christians. They're surrounded by hostile people to their religion. They don't know if they can keep going. And so... The writer of Hebrews tells this story to strengthen them in their belief that the God they cannot see is still worth following. And so he writes verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. He writes in verse 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab was not killed. What do we learn about lessons of faith from these two verses? Well, the first thing, the most obvious thing, I guess, is that the true faith overcomes insurmountable odds. And I will tell you, frankly, I am tempted to linger there because the points in the story that show that are so striking. Crossing the river was impossible. These walls were impregnable. But as the early church father Chrysostom said about all this, The sound of trumpets is unable to cast down stone walls, even if one blows on them for 10,000 years. But faith, he says, can do all things. This is a remarkable thing to think about. But since the next paragraph in Hebrews 11 that we will cover two weeks from now, greatly expand this idea of faith allowing impossible things and overcoming insurmountable odds. We'll leave it at that and go to a second lesson. This passage is clear. In some ways, as clear as any in the Bible, that true faith results in doing something. We've mentioned many times, working through this chapter, that true faith is not a feeling. It may be attended at feelings of time, But you can be a tourist in Europe and go into a great cathedral and the awe of the building, its height, its stature, the carvings and the stained glass, the hush that people show in reverence when they enter can make a person feel the presence of God, even if he has no relationship with God. But faith is more than a feeling. Faith is the determined confidence that what God has said is true and then acting on that confidence. Because faith without action, as the book of James says, is dead. Think about the actions that prove the faith of these people. The Israelites did not just pray from their camp that God would give them Jericho. The Israelites marched. And think of what was in their minds as they marched. 
they had to march despite the absolute absurdity of what they were asked to do. Don't yell. Don't sing. Don't chant. Don't recite scripture voices. Verses. Don't pray. Don't say anything. And yeah, you guys blow the horns. And then go home after you walk around as if you're leaving and fleeing. They're nothing seemed to be more foolish, but they marched. And they not only marched, they continued marching after day number one brought no results. And they got up and again marched on day two and three and five and six. Can you imagine that none of them were thinking, do we really keep doing this? Is this really going to make any difference? How many times have you opened the Bible in your lifetime and you read it, hoping to find some help from God, hoping to get some guidance or comfort, and you close it and you say, God, I, I, I read as you told us to, but I felt nothing. I cannot tell the inner change in me. How many times have you prayed for things that you care about? Things that you believe God would care about. And you ask him to change the hearts of friends or family. You ask them to enable you to be a better witness than the way you blew it trying to tell the gospel to your friends at school last week. But it just doesn't go anywhere. You can't tell that anything happens. And yet, you read again and you pray again. And you share the gospel again. Because you are like the Israelites who kept marching when everything seemed to be so absurd. They had a holy persistence. They held on till God's time had come. They marched. They continued marching. And that faith results in doing is shown, I think, particularly in Rahab. She hid those spies despite the danger. And not only hid them upstairs in case they would be found. But once they made their deal, she let them out through the window. We might think, ah, that's safe through the window. But there are guards constantly patrolling the upper levels of the walls. And so they take a huge risk that they cannot quite see when the guards pass by. And then by faith, God, we're going to count to 10. And boom, we're going to jump out the window and lower ourselves down through the rope. Something along those lines, I would imagine. If she were caught she would certainly be interrogated. That interrogation would certainly include torture. And it would all almost surely end in sure, slow death. But Rahab did these things. And not only did she do them on the roof and through the window, but she with her mouth identified with the enemies of her own people. Which is, of course... If you've been faithful to Jesus Christ over the last year or two especially, there are probably times when many of you have had to identify with God's people in a way that seemed like you were the uncouth, intolerant enemies of kindness and tolerance among the American people. But James 2 verse 25 says this, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction because faith without works is dead. It is at least possible 
that perhaps some in this room have exercised faith in the Lord Jesus that so far has been in your head, in your mind, in your thoughts, or perhaps in your feelings, but in no way has made a change for you. There are perhaps people who have said, I, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, I, I'm a Christian, but have never professed that in front of your friends or your family or people that you know would mock and smirk if you did it. There are others of you perhaps that have said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I've never been baptized and I really haven't come to do that yet. And I think that's probably okay, right? There are perhaps others of you that perhaps on Sunday on a church for an hour, an hour and a half, you come. And yet really throughout the week, it has made no difference at all in what you watch or what you say or how you use your money. If that is the case, if your faith has not resulted in doing something that reflects that it is real, you have reason to believe that the faith that you're leaning on is not the faith of the Bible because the faith of the Bible results in the Holy Spirit coming into a person, changing him or her, and beginning to give them the power to live somewhat differently, however up and down that living is. So then secondly, true faith results in doing. And finally, true faith brings salvation to even the most unworthy person. Think about who Rahab was. You may picture her as a suddenly, instantaneously godly woman. But this woman was paid to engage in any act of sexual deviancy that a person wished. She not only had engaged in these things herself, she had done so over a long period of time, and not only that, but she had lured many others into abominable sins. In doing so, she had doubtless ruined marriages and families. And in doing so, in all probability, she had had to get abortions. And yet, we read in Joshua 6.25, by the author of that book, who recounted everything that happened later in writing it, he said, quote, and Rahab lives among the Israelites to this day. Why? Because she believed that the one true God who could take those ragtag Jews who themselves were not the best and the brightest, if he was willing to take them, would he be willing to take her? And he did. Doubtless it was over time as she began to attend the sacrifices of the Israelites to look at the Passover that she started to more and more grasp that they were not forgiven because of just simple mercy from God who says boys will be boys and I'll just look the other way but that God had required a sacrifice and doubtless over time she would learn that that sacrifice was pictorial of a greater sacrifice to come many centuries later on a hillside outside of Jerusalem by our Savior. And here's what God did for this unworthy person. You may recall in the book of Matthew in the New Testament, when it begins to tell the gospel of Jesus, it gives the ancestral line of Jesus Christ. And it starts way in the past. And it goes on. And finally, it comes to a man named Salmon. We don't know who Salmon is. I don't remember reading about him. Oh, yeah. Salmon, we read in that long genealogy, was the father of a man named Boaz. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? 
Boaz is, is of course, the godly man in the book of Ruth that happened not terribly long after these very events, who married Ruth and who treated his employees in a godly way in the middle of a wicked world. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So here is the prostitute. She marries a Jewish man. She comes to believe in the Jewish God. They have a godly son, which means he was raised in a godly way. Matthew goes on to say, and this Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of King David and thus became the ancestor of great David's greater son, the ancestor of our Lord himself. This happened to her by grace through faith that showed itself in how it acted. And this, of course, then brings us to the whole point of the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate now. Could you ushers come forward, please? Perhaps you haven't been in a church very long, or perhaps you visited many churches. And whether you've been in this church for a short time or long, here or elsewhere, you've probably seen the Lord's Supper celebrated. Some churches do it every week. Some churches do it once a month. Some churches pass plates around to the seats. Some churches have people come and kneel at the front or pass by in the front and and take it. But what they have in common is this. They have in common that bread and that wine and the eating and drinking of it. What is the deal? When the Israelites were on the plain waiting to go to Jericho, something happened that we passed over in our sermon. For 40 years wandering in the desert, these Israelites had not celebrated the Passover. And not only had they not celebrated the Passover, but it's a good thing they didn't. Because none of the Israelites were circumcised as they traveled for those 40 years. Nobody exactly knows the reason why. But here you had a whole nation of people for whom circumcision was the outward symbol or picture of their relationship with God. And circumcision was absolutely required in order to celebrate the Passover. Now when Jesus Christ came, he said in essence, we'll no longer celebrate the Passover. At the last Passover meal... He took bread, he took wine, and he related them to himself and said, this bread is my body, this wine is my blood, and it's about your relationship with me. And instead of people being circumcised in order to take the Lord's Supper, today people are baptized with a water that symbolizes the washing of their sins and the Holy Spirit applying the blood of Christ to them. This is always accompanied, when it's real, by an outward profession of faith with your mouth. Whether you were baptized as a person of age when while you were being baptized at that point you professed that you're a Christian. Or whether you were baptized as a child and when you came of age you said, I want to make that baptism my own and own it. I am a Christian and state it publicly. And so therefore, because the men were circumcised on the plain in front of Jericho, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They celebrated the Passover which became the Lord's Supper. So the idea is this. The bread, as I say, 
speaks of Jesus Christ. Probably, probably Rahab had heard of the manna that God had given the Israelites for 40 years. And probably she said to herself as she learned more, I wonder what it was like. I wonder what it tasted like. I wonder what it looked like. Wouldn't it be neat maybe if I could even have manna, bread straight from God? But bread straight from God on the ground is not the issue. In Jesus' time, the people said to him, our forefathers, our forefathers ate manna in the desert because the Bible says that he gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus looked at them and said, you are looking in the wrong direction. He said, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my father who gives you the bread from heaven. The bread from heaven is, and he pointed to himself, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I, he says, am the bread of life. So if you have been baptized, if you have made a public profession of faith, if you have a good relationship or a good standing with your home church, we welcome you to take this supper and eat this bread. Amen.
Every word of the Bible is there for a reason. Because God breathed it out and he makes no mistakes. And the Bible goes out of its way to describe the cord that was hung from the window of the prostitute. Take this scarlet cord and hang it and you will be saved. This is, of course, no accident. The idea is, of course, the redness of what was there. The idea, as nobody would know until they had to pass over and perhaps thought about it. And later, as Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper, they realized, my goodness, it's pictorial, isn't it? It's pictorial of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said when he took this cup, this cup is the new agreement, the new covenant In my blood, which is poured out for you, as Rachel and the spies made a covenant with each other, she committed to them and they committed to save her. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit commit to save anyone who leaves their own people of this world, as it were, who identifies with the people of God, who comes to believe in Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the one true God, and thus Make a covenant. This blood, he said, this cup is poured out for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Two fifty three together.
dear Doc. In some ways, I wish we were a small enough group that we could pass around the same cup as they did on that first Lord's Supper. But I hope that we think of it as the same cup. Drink of it. The blood of Jesus Christ shed for your sins. There'll be places in the back to take your cups as you leave. Would you stand for the benediction? Now may God the Father, who parted the waters of the Jordan River, may Jesus Christ, his Son, the Son of the Scarlet Cord, and may the Holy Spirit, who gave faith to Rahab, be with all of you. Amen.